If you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, we are starting a new series today called The Glory of the Lord. And uh, it doesn't start off on a particularly positive note, but we're going to see that and we're going to spend this year in the book of Exodus and learn a lot about God and what he's like and what he wants and what he wants for us. So if you would have that open, we're actually going to read it as we go through in the interest of time, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. We need it as much as the Hebrew people, Hebrew slaves needed it. We needed to be reminded of what makes God great. We need the glory of the Lord, and we need Jesus, and we need the salvation he offers. And so we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us this morning to see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Anyone who's seen Fox's hit TV show 24 understands the concept of racing against the clock. It's no longer being shown, but they keep threatening to bring it back. And uh, so who knows? But the program revolves around uh, the character of Jack Bauer, who's this edgy and daring member of CTU, this fictional counterterrorism unit, who's constantly seeking to avert some catastrophe or threat to US national security. But what made 24 so unique and gave it its title is that each full season follows the events over the course of a single day in Jack's life, with each of its 24 episodes occurring in one hour of real time, and we're not counting the commercials. And then so when a bomb is set to go off in 15 minutes, it will actually go off in 15 minutes, unless, of course, Jack Bauer can disarm it in time. And in Jack Bauer's world, time is a constant enemy. There's never enough of it. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, we encounter two other men who I think would identify with Jack Bauer. Because for them, too, time is an enemy. It robs them of contentment in the midst of seemingly vast blessings. So in Hebrews 11.22, we read, By faith, Joseph at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This cryptic passage is referring to the account in Genesis 50, where Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And at first glance, it doesn't seem all that strange that Joseph wanted to escape Egypt even after he died. After all, wasn't Egypt a horrible place? Scripture describes in Exodus 20 as a house of slavery. But it wasn't for Joseph. We have to remember that Egypt didn't become a place of hardship and oppression for Israel until after he died. When, as we read in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
During Joseph's tenure there, Egypt is a place of bounty and salvation amid the famine that plagued uh, the surrounding region. And Joseph second only to Pharaoh in power, stature, and the respect of the masses. Matt, can you turn my mic down slightly? I'm getting a lot of feedback. Thanks. So whatever it was that caused Joseph to long for another land, it wasn't because of discomfort or deprivation. At the end of Genesis, Joseph is on top of the world. Now, another man with similar misgivings is Moses. And his experience of Egypt is a far cry from that which characterized the Israelite slaves, at least initially. He's an adopted son in the royal family of Pharaoh. And according to Stephen's testimony in Acts chapter 7, we read, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Last night, Joanne and I watched the Exodus movie, you know, that stars Batman. Um, and uh, uh, they added a lot in and took a lot out. And I think one of my biggest complaints was they took away Moses' staff and replaced it with a sword. But they did it because the Bible says he was mighty in words and deeds. So there's some element of truth in there, however small. And yet his amazing pedigree notwithstanding, Scripture says of him, again in Hebrews 11, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid in the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." So what brought both Joseph and Moses to despise the land that, at least for most of their life, symbolized protection and pleasure and power? Simply that they realized that after living this life of wealth and power, that life in the secular realm, even when it affords us great blessings like health and wealth, is ultimately eternally unsatisfying. It's not because the blessings of earth are a mirage. They're not. They're real, but they're subject to the ravages of time. While we've been created with this built-in dissatisfaction with anything short of heavenly eternal glory. And just like Joseph and Moses, we long for something we don't have. Being in the visible presence of of the glory of the Lord. Hence the title of this new sermon series on the book of Exodus, The Glory of the Lord. Because throughout the book, that's the goal. We want to be where the glory of the Lord is. And most of the time, we're not there. And most of the time, neither are these people in the book of Exodus. It's around them, it's near them, they can see it at a distance, but it's not right there most of the time. In this book, God reveals himself. He's the main character, 
not Moses, not the Israelites, not the Egyptians, not the law, not the miracles or the judgments, just God. It's all about God. And since this is the first sermon in the series, I'm going to spend a lot of time on the background and meaning of the book, and then we'll go through the text rather quickly. I know that's a little out of the ordinary, but I want to convince you this is an amazing book and well worth your time. So let's start with the foundational message of Exodus. And I would suggest, I think we get a bit astonished when it comes to what we see when we look at Exodus. You know, you think just as the internet has changed the world uh, that we live in today, we can hardly remember what life was like without it. So Exodus changed everything about the Bible. It's not just our understanding of the Bible, but so much of what we know about God, basic theology, the meaning of the New Testament, the person and work of Jesus Christ, most of which makes little sense apart from the book of Exodus. There are themes, symbols, concepts, have deep biblical meaning that are formed or birthed in this book. It is a foundational book. Let me give you a few examples. There would be no context for words like the Lamb of God, the Passover, unleavened bread, wandering in the wilderness, the Ten Commandments, and manna from heaven. Without Exodus, there was no law, no sacrificial system, no ark, no tabernacle, no priesthood, no identity of Israel as an independent nation. There was no understanding of God as Yahweh, I am, as transcendent and holy and yet as imminent and near. And obviously all of these are pretty significant themes as it relates to the Bible. And it's remarkable how important Exodus is in the development of these ideas and doctrines. But there's one more issue that's foundational to everything. Salvation. Prior to Exodus, God was not known as a rescuing, saving, delivering God. And the Exodus event becomes the defining moment in God's relationship with his people. And that's why we need to study Exodus. It is a foundational book for our understanding of God and the gospel. Great biblical scholar, Dr. J.A. Moitzer, uh, has commentary on Exodus and says, it begins the normative Old Testament and biblical revelation of God's way of salvation. It underlines the nature of God as holy and of humans as sinners. It explains the meaning of blood and sacrifice. It's a book of grace which reaches down from heaven and of the law which teaches redeemed sinners to live in heavenly terms. While some of these great truths are foreshadowed in Genesis, Exodus pulls them all together, giving them a shape and definition the rest of the Bible will not alter. Under the simplest of forms and by many a fascinating story, Exodus reveals fundamental truth and is in fact one of the Bible's greatest building blocks. This book defines God and his relationship with his people. Listen to what God said in Exodus 20 in the preamble to the first commandment. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And the events recorded, the laws given, the images portrayed, the worship inaugurated, are all foundational to the gospel. The message that Jesus delivers people from slavery to sin. 
In the same manner that God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, he delivers them from slavery to sin. The salvation out of Egypt with a sacrificial lamb and the shedding of blood is a clear indication of what's to come with Jesus. But Exodus does more than just foreshadow or predict. It establishes the foundational concepts upon which the new covenant is based and fulfilled in Jesus. As John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That statement has no meaning without Exodus. This book is foundational. So what's it about? What's the primary message? At first you might think it's about the people of Israel, since Exodus is a collection of their history. You could read events like the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea and Mount Sinai and easily draw the conclusion it's just simply a story of God's people. Well, Exodus contains some amazing stories regarding God's people. It's so much more. We get a hint of the real target in two texts. The first one's found in Exodus chapter 6. God speaks to Moses from the burning bush. And the second is the closing passage in Exodus 40. So let's look at those two in turn. Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8 says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So what do you see in here? Note the prominence of the phrase, I am the Lord. God begins with this statement. He explains the purpose of their deliverance is so that you shall know that I'm the Lord your God. The purpose is not so that you'll be free. The purpose is not just so you'll get a cool land, which really wasn't all that cool, which they didn't discover until they actually got there. And they were like, 40 years in the desert for this? It wasn't like you know it today. It was all just rock. And yet, God says, I am the Lord. The book of Exodus is not really about Israel. It's about God. We see this very uh, much more at the end of the book. We see the second great thing. Everything in the book leads to this climactic moment at the end of the book. The storyline of the book is that God has delivered his people from slavery at the hands of the powerful nation of Egypt. He's brought them through the Red Sea, defeated their enemies, gave them the law, specified what worship should look like. And where does this lead? We go to the very end of the book, Exodus 40. Then the clouds covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel. 
throughout all their journeys. Can't miss the significance of that moment. The God who rescued them from slavery drowned the powerful Egyptian army, displays his glory on Mount Sinai, issued his holy law, is the same guy who lives among his people. God has delivered his people, and he dwells in their midst. Not like the so-called gods of the other nation or the gods of the Egyptians who are unmoved and uninvolved in the affairs of their people. Our God is near. He dwells with his people. This is unique in human history. So if you take those two passages, Exodus 6 and Exodus 40, and kind of put them together, you could probably summarize the message of Exodus this way. Exodus displays the God who delivers his people and dwells among them. Exodus is about God. The nation of Israel becomes the platform upon which the glory of the Lord is seen by the people of God and by the rest of the world. And throughout the book, we see this emerging picture of what God is like. We see a God who controls history, who reveals himself as I am, who is holy, who acts to save his people, who acts in judgment, whose anger can be converted, who speaks, who's transcendent, and yet who lives among his people. Israel is a canvas on which God displays the amazing portrait of his glory. But Exodus isn't the only place. God does that repeatedly throughout history. He does it in the New Testament. We read in Ephesians 2, Paul says something that's actually pretty similar. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The gospel is not about us either. It is about the glory of God. Exodus is not about Israel. It is about the glory of the Lord. So let's dive in and see what it says. Turn to verse 1. We're going to start by seeing these are people of the covenant. People of the covenant. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. That's where they start, 70 It says, Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So the first 14 verses of Exodus establish the setting in which the book takes place. And it's clearly connected to other parts of the Bible. Exodus is the second of the five books of Moses, which are called the Pentateuch. And Exodus is the continuation of the story from the book of Genesis. And even though it's usually left out of English translations, verse 1 begins with a Hebrew word for and. connects us to where Genesis left off. Genesis 50 ends with Joseph's death in Egypt after a very interesting and providential journey. Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob, who's also called Israel, 
Jacob's the son of Isaac, Isaac's the son of Abraham. The man God called out of Ur and promised he would be the father of many nations, his offspring would inherit the land of Canaan. And go back to Genesis 17, see that promise. And Joseph is dearly loved by his father and hated and sold into slavery by his brothers, promoted to a place of prominence in the Egyptian government. He saves the nation from starvation during a famine. He forgives his brother for sinning against him, and he relocates his father's household to the land of Goshen, which is a province in Egypt. And verse 1 begins with the names of Jacob's sons, who eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. And we learn in verse 5, all the descendants of Jacob are 70 persons. And this data point is, I think, given to us to establish the incredible growth of the nation in all the future years. You know, verse 7, we hear this reference. Sounds a lot like uh, the original dominion mandate in Genesis 1. The people of Israel are fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. So we have this sort of growing and expanding nation of God's people. But then something drastic happens. There is a change in circumstances. There is a major turn in verse 8. A new king begins to reign in Egypt. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. According to Exodus 12, the people of Israel lived in Egypt 430 years. So there's ample time for multiple dynasties to come and go. I want you to stop and consider 430 years. Just a moment. Think about how much can change in that time. What would your great, 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 great grandfather's life have been like? He actually could have landed with the colonists sent by Sir Walter Raleigh in 1585. That's how long we're talking about. The Israelites are slaves for approximately the same period of time from when America was first colonized until today. It's a long time. Many scholars believe that there was a major political shift in Egypt that took place during those 430 years. Joseph likely came to power during the reign of the Hyksos pharaohs, a group of outsiders who actually moved into Egypt, invaded and conquered Egypt. And eventually the Hyksos rulers were overthrown and Egypt was ruled by Egyptians. And as it often happens when you have a sort of a change in the political structure, there's a new nationalism that's birthed in this revolution. And it bred a disdain for foreigners. And Israel's caught in the middle of a political upheaval. Because these new rulers look back and say, you know, the old rulers had moved in, and there got to be a whole lot of them, and eventually they took over, and we had to come and kick them out. And now we got this other people over here, and there's an awful lot of them, and it seems that they're growing and multiplying, and we're not going to let that happen again. 
So the other group is the Hebrew people. Joseph had likely come to power with that other group. So when the new group takes over, that's actually Egyptians, saying that Joseph was not known is much more than the guy just hadn't met him. It means the ruling pharaoh treated the Israelites as though Joseph had never been the prime minister of Egypt. Joseph was, after all, a foreigner. And this drastic change in circumstances led to an even more drastic time of conflict. A more drastic time of conflict. Starting at verse 9, we read, this is the pharaoh speaking, the new pharaoh. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So over time, the Israelites become this persecuted and abused minority. Under the banner of national security, a culture of oppression develops. And these verses seem to have a progression to them as these racial fears of the Egyptians prompt more and more aggressive action. They move from dealing shrewdly with them in verse 10 to oppression in verse 12 to ruthlessness in verse 14. The Egyptians feared losing control of their country again. And so in time, the Israelites became the slaves of the Egyptians and a vital labor force to build up the nation of Egypt. The goal was to reduce their influence and reduce the threat of the people of Israel by enslaving them. And then we had population reduction by government-sanctioned oppression became the goal. And there is a clear sense in the text that their population reduction plan doesn't work. And eventually, as we'll see next week, it led to government-sanctioned genocide, the intentional killing of Hebrew male babies. And if you doesn't think, don't think that relates to our current cultural situation, you haven't been reading the news. But that comes next week. This week, in the first half of chapter 1, we see the more Egypt oppressed the people, the more they grew. And the tension increases as Israel feels the full threat of this government policy of slavery. And it's this way for a long time, hundreds of years. And God's promise to Abraham about blessing and land seemed very, very far away. The book of Exodus establishes very early the enormity of the challenge that God's people faced. God providentially led his people to Egypt to protect them. But now they're victims of systemic national abuse. It's hard for us to even imagine 
how hopeless their situation must have felt to them. Again, Dr. Moyer writes, they're there by divine command, under divine promise, awaiting divine intervention. Of these things, however, they saw no outward signs. Heaven above was as silent as the earth around was threatening. They had become slaves in Egypt, and their lives were filled with ruthless, bitter work. It's not even until chapter 2 that God's name gets even mentioned. And the first time it's used in any sort of hopeful way isn't until the end of chapter 2. We read there, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Those are powerful verses with a lot of emotion. Israel's in pain as a people. They're groaning. They're crying out to God for rescue. Don't miss this. God hears their cry. God remembers his covenant. And verse 25 uh, of chapter 2 drives home the point. They must have been nagging at these people as they suffered. Does God hear us? Does God see us? Does God know us? Does he even remember us? And the answer to those questions is in a, a, a resounding yes. Exodus is the story of God as he rescues his people. God hears the groaning of his people. And so it's a great story. But what difference does that make for us? After all, you live in this world, not that one. And you're not a slave, or so you think. And maybe you don't even like history. But perhaps Exodus is preparing us for our future. Perhaps Exodus will teach us what's really important. Even perhaps Exodus will make us sing. As people of New Testament times, the book of Exodus should lead us into worship. We know the full picture of the gospel, the big picture story of the Bible, and we can see it appear so many different ways here. Once you start looking at the uh, foundations of redemption in Exodus, it's remarkable what you find. This morning we read from Psalm 105. Psalm 105 and 106 together are called the Exodus Psalms. And Psalm 105 is all about what happened and then Psalm 106 is the people's reaction to what happened. And Psalm 106 says, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praises? No wonder that the book of Revelation uh, says that in heaven we'll sing Revelation 15, and they sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. What does Exodus do for us? Why does it make us sing? Well, first of all, Exodus shows us that while life can be very, very hard, God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. It's one thing to hear that God keeps his promises. It's another to see a tangible and specific example. 
And Exodus becomes exhibit A. That even though when it feels like God has abandoned you and forgotten you and is not hearing you, it's only a matter of time until he acts. Exodus shows us that even hardship and suffering can fit into the plan of God. Without the slavery, the deliverance would not have been nearly as glorious. Dr. Philip Graham uh, Riken says, Our sufferings help us look for our salvation. Or to quote from Spurgeon, The whip of persecution is helpful because it makes us learn that this is the house of bondage and it moves us to long after and seek for the land of liberty, the land of joy. Exodus shows that even in the midst of long seasons of painful waiting, God's promises are still true. It's only a matter of time. God will deliver his people. Second, Exodus reminds us that the end game here is God's glory. When you read the book of Exodus through a God-centered lens instead of a people-centered lens, it changes everything. You see, there's so much more going on here than God just building a new nation or rescuing people from oppression. So one of my friends says, God's probably doing 5,000 things in your life right now, and you're aware of four of them. And that's kind of like the book of Exodus. God's doing all kinds of stuff, and we can only see a few. God aims to magnify himself through what he does with Israel. And this tiny collection of people, 70 people, is going to get much, much bigger. But it's going to serve as sort of a, a narrative telescope, which brings us near to the majesty, the glory, the power, the might of God. We'll see that God doesn't just deliver his people from Egypt because they're being abused. He delivers them because God is greater than Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt. We like to think of ourselves as a superpower. But in comparison to the Egypt of that day and time, we're nothing. Egypt was one of the greatest superpowers in the history of the world at that point. They were the biggest country, the most wealth, the most power. And there wasn't anybody else around that could stand up to them. Later there would be in history, but at this point in time, nobody. And yet, we're going to see God is greater than the greatest country on the face of the earth. And that's still true. Dr. Reichen notes, the exodus, therefore, is not simply a struggle between Moses and Pharaoh, or even between Israel and Egypt. Ultimately, it's another skirmish between the great ongoing war between God and Satan. God's aim is to make his name known, and he even raises Pharaoh up for this very purpose. He tells him in Exodus 9, For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. When God's glory is the end game, it changes how you view everything. Suffering, difficulties, opposition, delay, even success. And when God's people forget about God's glory and they start focusing on their circumstances, then bad things start to happen. Golden calves jump out of the fire. We'll see that in Exodus 32. People start to complain. They start to say dumb things. Is it because there's no graves in Egypt you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? We see that in Exodus 14. 
when you've seen God's glory and when you've tasted God's presence, you don't go anywhere without it. Third, Exodus should awaken in us a new affection for the gospel. When you've received Christ as your Savior and you've been rescued from your sin, you'll read Exodus differently. Just think about all those New Testament passages that have echoes of Exodus in them. Romans 6, Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Ephesians 2, You who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I could give you 20 more that all refer back, give you the image of Exodus. You can't help but see this emerge in the book of Exodus as slaves are set free with this amazing display of divine power. The law is given. The tabernacle is built. God dwells with them. You can't help but rejoice at this idea, first time in history, of a holy God dwelling with his people. Nobody else could even imagine that or fathom that. We take it for granted. This is really the first time in history God dwells with his people. You can't even help but think how the Bible ends. Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. If you have a gospel-affected heart, then you'll read Exodus with gospel-affected eyes. And you'll see the beginning of salvation as we know it, and it'll make you rejoice. And you'll see yourself in this book as a slave, desperate for deliverance, completely helpless, and then in awe of what God can do. And finally, Exodus should help you see Jesus. See Jesus more clearly. The book of Exodus will help you see Jesus. Remember after Jesus' resurrection and he was walking on the Emmaus Road with two of his disciples, and at that point, they weren't sure who he was? Remember what it says about him, Luke 24? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The story of the gospel through Jesus Christ is the theme of the entire Bible, including Exodus. Jesus is personally involved and pictured in Exodus. Jude verse 5 tells it us that it was Jesus who delivered his people out of Egypt. Matthew 2 shows us that Jesus' life is patterned after Exodus. Out of Egypt I have called my son. He was born as a savior, rescued from enemies, passed through the waters of baptism, went into the wilderness, went up on a mountain where he experiences the glory of God, and then from the mountain he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. Any of that sound familiar? He's the Passover lamb, dying during the very feast that marked the Exodus deliverance. And he's the bread of life and gives us living water. All images that come from Exodus. And as you read Exodus, you'll see Jesus. And you'll be reminded of what he really means to you. Again, Dr. Riken reminds us, as we trace their spiritual journey, we discover we need what they needed. 
We need a, a liberator, a God to save us from slavery and destroy our enemies. We need a provider, a God to feed us bread from heaven and water from the rock. We need a lawgiver, a God to command us how to love and ser serve him. And we need a friend, a God to stay with us day and night forever. Like the Israelites, God has heard the groaning of his people. And the glorious message of the Bible is there is freedoms from slavery to sin through Jesus Christ. And although things are very different in Exodus, if you read closely and listen carefully, you will see Jesus. Out of the groaning of slavery, God creates the song of redemption. And salvation is glorious, and it all starts with Exodus. It's going to be a fun trip. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Draw us closer to yourself through the revelation of your glory. Lead us to such a great salvation as you reveal yourself as rescuer, deliverer, redeemer, and savior. Show us that you're greater than all the gods of this world and this age. Build our faith, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, who saves us from sin and who today lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.